Welcome to the New Day Community Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you're encouraged by this message from the Vandalia, Michigan campus. For more info, look us up at newdaycommunity.org. To New Day recently, over the last couple of weeks, you'll know that we are in a series uh, focusing on Ephesians uh, chapter 4 and a few verses from Ephesians chapter 4. And uh, this morning we're going to be continuing with that series and we're going to be focusing on uh, one of these uh, grace callings and uh, we're going to be looking specifically at the grace calling of a teacher. And uh, I'm excited to be able to bring uh, this word to you this morning and to begin to uh, think a little bit more about what it means to have this grace calling of a teacher and have that be part of the church fellowship. And uh, by way of reminder, or if you've uh, not been here for the whole series, uh, this is uh, part of our continuing series on grace and truth. And so you see this banner behind us. We're taking the first part of the year to talk about grace and the second half of the year to talk about truth. And as part of the series on grace, we're focusing on these verses from Ephesians chapter 4 that really focus on what are these grace callings and these um, gifts to the church. And uh, this morning we're continuing in that series. And if you've been attending New Day this year, you'll know that uh, our key verse for the year is taken actually from John chapter 1. And it talks about the idea that the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So grace and truth come to us through the person of Jesus Christ. And as we think about grace and truth through this whole year, we're actually thinking as well about what does this tell us about Christ? What does Christ reveal to us about these two ideas of grace and truth. Uh, These um, Ephesians 4 grace callings are really, really um, helpful for us to understand the nature of the church. And uh, they tell us a lot about what the mission of the church uh, should look like. And uh, when we look at these five grace callings from Ephesians chapter 4, uh, we're not doing this simply to understand you know, a few titles and a few things that we see in the church. We're actually doing this so that we truly understand the nature of the church itself. Um, And understanding the nature of the church is actually really important as a Christian. And it's really important to know what the church is supposed to be like and what the church should do because uh, Christ has actually given authority to the church to carry out his mission on the earth, right? So if you think about the life of Christ... He has this earthly ministry, he, um, he dies on the cross, he's buried, he is raised to life on the third day, and he appears to many. We know that that is the gospel message from 1 Corinthians 15. And then he ascends into heaven. And what does he do right before he ascends to heaven? He gives all authority. He, gives that, he says, all authority has been given to me, and then he commissions, he sends out his followers into the world, right? And he gives them this command to go and to... And to and to, to teach and to baptize and to disciple the nations. And uh, we are the fruit of that, that work. And um, that has led to, uh, when we read Acts chapter 2, we see that the formation or the birth of the church. And so this church, this idea of church is really, really important. And uh, church actually has, has, a, has a, a style and a form and a function that we see in the New Testament. And uh, churches certainly look different across cultures, 
But when we, when we read our, our New Testaments, we see that there's actually, no matter what culture you are in or what style of church um, you might have, there are certain things that when we read our New Testament that are built into the DNA of what the church is. And when we open up Ephesians 4, we see some of what that looks like. Uh, understanding what the church is supposed to function like is really, really important as a Christian. And sometimes we can, we can maybe think, uh, yeah, church, you know, there's some people who think like this. Where they say, well, church is kind of optional. Like being a Christian is, is really important. But church is kind of optional, right? If you can make it to church, that's probably good. Or, yeah, church has probably got its place. But some people are, they would say, well, I'm all about Jesus, but I'm not so sure about the church. Well, that's to fundamentally not understand Jesus. Because Jesus has invested everything into the church, right? And so it's really important that we understand how the church is supposed to function. And Ephesians 4 and our passage for today help us to understand what the church is supposed to be like. And uh, this is really helpful for us, right? It's really helpful to know what things are supposed to look like, how things are supposed to function, Right? If you were uh, to start a business or if you were interested in, in running a business well, you might look at other examples of businesses that are functioning really well. Right? To get, how, how do you do this thing? Right? How do you start a business? How do you, how do you manage a business? Right? Uh, you know, when, we, when, we drive down, when I drive down here and I pass a lot of fields, right? if I was to become a farmer, which would probably not go well for me, but what does it look like to farm well? Well, there are people who have done this for a long time, right? There were people you can probably turn to, maybe your neighbors or, or maybe your parents or your grandparents' farm. My, my parents both grew up on farms. My uncle's farm, my grandfather's farmed, right? If I happened to be the next in line to be a farmer, I would be looking to them. What does it look like to farm, right? There's ways to do this. And so when we look at the church, we can look at the New Testament and we can see there's ways to do this thing called church. There's ways that we can, we can see the church function and flourish. And that's exciting for us to be able to see that, and it's really important for us to be able to see it. So uh, just to, to jump in this morning, as I mentioned, we're continuing this series looking at grace. We are looking at these callings that shape the church and give it a certain function. And these are found especially in Ephesians 4, 11 to 13, which we'll read in a moment. And uh, what we read in Ephesians 4, 11 to 13 are these five grace callings, and they go by these letters A-P-E-S-T, or A-P-E-S-T, which is kind of an unfortunate kind of name, you know, but pest, but that's what we have. And what do these stand for? Apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, and teacher. And shepherd we often call pastor in our, in our language. And these are five grace callings that are given to the church. And these are given to the church so that the church can function in a healthy way. And this morning, we are going to look at the T in APAS, which is teacher. So that's, how we're going to, that's where we're going to focus this morning. So uh, you've heard me reference Ephesians chapter 4. So let's look at this together. And right before we look at these verses, I want to frame up this chapter. And again, this might be familiar if you've been coming over the last few weeks, but I just want to recap it. Paul starts the fourth chapter of Ephesians with a very clear focus on unity in the church. So that gives us our first clue. What's the church supposed to look like? The church is supposed to be united. The church is supposed to live in unity. 
And uh, Paul gives us a clue that this is not always easy because he also then talks about certain things that need to be present in the church in order for there to be unity. What do those things look like? Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. These are all in the verses that come right before these verses. Paul's setting us up here. The church should be united. We are to make an effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Okay, so this is all leading up to these verses. Paul's very, very focused here on the church being united, living together under this thing called the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And that leads us into verse 7 here where he says, But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, When he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. So Paul there is quoting um, that little section, When he ascended on high, that's actually one of the Psalms uh, that Paul is referring back to. He's taking that and applying it to Christ. And uh, Paul does this thing here where you see in parentheses for verses 9 and 10, this is kind of Paul, he kind of sidetracks himself because he's really excited by this idea that Christ has given gifts and he ascended on high. And, and Paul gets really excited by this thought. And, um, and that's why in our English translations, they put these next two verses in parentheses because Paul kind of gets sidetracked, right? Do you ever find yourself getting really excited by an idea that you sidetrack yourself? Right? Paul does that to himself in this passage. So if Paul does it, then we know that it's okay to sidetrack yourself. And what does Paul say? He says that, uh, what does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Paul basically lets his mind wander and lets, lets his imagination wander here for a moment. And he gets really excited. So what's he doing here? Paul is saying Christ has given gifts. Remember, grace is another word for for gifts. It's more than that, but that's a way that we can think about grace as gifts. So Paul thinks in his mind, I've heard about this before. I've heard about this in the book of Psalms. That there is one who takes many captives and he gives gifts to his people. And he applies that to Christ. And then he thinks, wow, If he ascended, that means he must have descended, right? Have you ever heard the expression, we use the expression, what goes up must come down? Well, Paul flips it and says, what's gone up must have been done. (laughs) And so he says, wow, Christ ascended. Well, Well, if he went up, that means he must have been lower. Well, how low did Christ go? Well, he actually went, he went really low. He actually went as low as, as you can possibly go. Um, Christ went to the lower earthly regions, right? And this is this kind of mysterious part of the Easter weekend, right? When Christ has died and he descends to the depths. And, you know, the New Testament hints here and there at what Christ does. But we know that in that period, he's doing this liberating work of liberating captives. Whatever that means. It's good news. And Paul just lets his mind wander, and he says, wow, that is amazing. That's amazing that Christ went that low. And why is it amazing? Because actually, Christ then, from the lowest depths, went to the highest height. 
Uh, so remember from Ephesians 2 that Christ is the name that's high above all names, the name that every tongue will confess and every knee will bow to the name of Jesus. So Christ has gone from the lowest depths to the highest height. And what does that mean? Well, it means everywhere you go, from the lowest to the highest, Christ has been there. Christ actually fills all of that space. And that's exactly what Paul says here. In order to fill the whole universe. So there's nowhere we can go that Christ has not already been. That's a, that's a good kind of aside, right? That's not even the main point of the passage, right? Paul has sidetracked himself with this amazing thought about how incredible Christ is because he's gone from the very bottom all the way to the very top. Okay. So we sidetracked ourselves for a minute there with that thought, but that's okay. We can keep going. So remember, the main thought here is that Christ, who is in the highest place, and what that also means is Christ has the ability and the authority to give these gifts. Right? So Christ has given gifts. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. That's where we get our apest. Uh, to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Okay, so what does this text teach us? What do these verses teach us? Paul describes a grace that has been given to the church. And we've been teaching on grace so far at New Day this year, since January. And I don't know what you think about when you think of grace, but it can sometimes be hard to... Get your mind around what grace is, right? It can be hard to sometimes think, what exactly is grace? I know it's good. I know I experience it. I I know, you know, I want it. Like, it's it's good, right? But it's not like you can go take a picture of it. It's not like you can go and buy some of it. It's not like you can hold it in your hand, right? Grace kind of is this abstract thing a lot of the times. We just, we don't always know exactly what it looks like. We know kind of what it feels like, we know the results of faith, we know what impact it makes in our lives, but it's kind of hard to, it's not not this thing that you can kind of grasp very easily in some ways. But what's amazing about this passage is Paul actually describes grace in a way that's very, very easy to see. It's very, very easy to see. In fact, it's right in front of our eyes. Uh, Grace is given in this passage directly by Christ to everyone. So who benefits from this grace? Everyone. Everyone. Who is that good news for? Everyone. Everyone, right? So here today, you get to receive this grace. And if we actually follow Paul's logic, there's two uh, ways in which this grace um, comes to us, or there's two levels on which this grace operates. So um, first of all, there's a level of grace that equips each Christian to become mature in the faith. I'm going to talk more about this in a moment. But that's the first level of grace that we see in this passage, where Paul says that the goal for each Christian in this passage is maturity, and, that, and he calls this maturity, he puts a name to it, he says it's the, it's the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So that's a, that's a pretty good name for it. That's what it looks like to be mature, the whole measure of the fullness of Christ in your life. That's the goal. And the grace here is that we're not left to achieve this lofty goal by ourselves. Um, I'm not actually 100% sure how to attain the full measure of the fullness of Christ in my life. Like, that seems like a really big task. There are certain things in life I kind of know 
how to do those things. This is not one of them. This is not one that I would just naturally know how to do. And so I need help with it, and that help comes to me in the form of grace. That help comes in the form of a gift so that I can attain the fullness of this measure of Christ in my life. Right? That's good news, right? You do not have to do this by yourself. There is a gift that is given to each of us so that we can reach that goal. That's good news, right? And what does that gift look like? Well, it's actually the, the second point there. This gift of grace actually looks like other people. So when you wonder what grace looks like, at least one way we know what grace looks like is it looks like people in the church. And I don't know if you've ever thought about grace being people, but that's what Paul wants us to think about. Paul wants us to see that there are people in the church who are gifts to us, who are grace to us. And those people have names. They are apostles. They're prophets. They're evangelists. They're shepherds and they're teachers. So Christ has given each one of us here in New Day Vandalia, Christ has directly given each of you a gift. And that gift actually comes in the form of people. And those people have different titles and different functions. Not so that they can be awesome and amazing, but so that you all can attain to the fullness of the measure of Christ. That's the gift to you. So you don't have to do it all by yourself. You don't have to figure everything out yourself. There are gifts of grace that are given to you by Christ directly to help you in that life goal. That's good news, right? That's really good news. So today we're looking at teacher. Teacher's an interesting one because of the whole five, it's the only one that is also a recognized profession or career or calling that's outside of the church. Apostle, well, that's a church thing. Prophet, also a church thing. Evangelist, a church thing. Pastor, a church thing. Teacher, teachers teach. <coughs> we have a whole other category of teachers, right? It's the only one of the five. So uh, who are teachers? Amber's a teacher. Who else is a teacher? We have a teacher. Teachers. Each of us have been influenced by teachers, right? Every single one of us is shaped by teachers. Did any of you have really great teachers growing up? I did. Did any of you have kind of not so great teachers growing up? Yeah, right? We've all been there. Okay. That's okay. We've all been there. Um, I had great teachers growing up. I had really average teachers growing up, right? That's just how it goes. But we can visualize. We know what a teacher is, right? We know what a good teacher is like. Uh, when I was about 10, I actually missed quite a bit of the school year because I was, I was sick. I had a really bad case of mono, and I was completely fatigued. I couldn't go to school for, for a few months. And uh, I had this teacher who, on her way home, several days in the week, would actually bring um, stuff they were working on in class. She'd bring it to my house. She'd bring homework so that I could keep pace with everyone in the class. And she did that for months. And I still remember that. That was an amazing gift to me. Because it meant that I didn't have to be held back a year, and I could continue on with my age group and with my grade level. Wow, what an incredible gift. And that is a teacher, right? That's a, that's a, that's a gift to me. 
And I remember the sacrifice of that. She didn't have to do that. I wasn't in her classroom every day. But she knew how important it was, and she sacrificed her time and her effort to make sure that I was able to keep pace. Teachers are incredible examples of sacrifice and dedication, and we should honor teachers. And if you really get me started, don't get me started on how we don't honor teachers in our society and culture and how we don't pay them enough and how we, it's crazy they have to spend money to decorate their own classrooms and all that type of thing. Anyway, <laughs> for our purposes today, we want to focus on the role of the teacher in the church. Remember, our primary focus is the church. Well, we've been reading a book as a, as a pastoral uh, preaching team. We have been reading a book by Alan Hirsch, and he is a, uh, one of these guys that has a cool title. He's a missional thinker and you know, whatever, right? What else does he do? He just gets to pontificate and write books, right? He's, he's pretty cool. So anyway, so he's written a book that's really been helpful in us in thinking through the series. And so he actually has some things that he's talked about, uh, about the role of a teacher in the church. So I thought I would just summarize them for you so that you don't have to read the book. So um, he actually has nine things that really help us to understand what's the role of a, of a teacher in the church. And so... Remember, we're thinking of the grace gift that comes to us as the church in the form of a, of a teacher. The first one is that a teacher brings uh, wisdom and understanding. Wisdom and understanding. A te the teacher, at their core, is focused on the church acquiring wisdom and understanding and creating a culture of curiosity and one that wants to pursue learning and insight. So the teaching gift in the church pushes us to pursue wisdom and understanding. Number two, to develop a worldview formation and maintenance. I don't know if you think about this very much, but each of us has a worldview. That's a way that we, that we view how things should be. We, uh, we live our lives according to certain values and certain perspectives. That's your worldview. It shapes what you think about. It shapes how you think about those things. It shapes how you do your work. It shapes how you live at home. It shapes everything. It's a little bit like the operating system on your phone or your computer, right? That operating system shapes and limits and gives structure to the things that are possible for you to do. Well, we kind of live our lives that way, too. We live our lives a certain way, right? If you ever met somebody that has a, just a completely fundamentally different set of values to you, right? They're running on a different operating system. They're running on a different worldview, right? We each have worldviews. And... Uh, a teacher in the church is really, really um, concerned and focused on the idea that each of us is tuning into the biblical worldview and knows what it is to have the biblical worldview shape our lives. It's the role of the teacher. Number three, to cultivate a love of scriptures. Uh, the teachers in the church are really focused on the beauty of scripture and unpacking the beauty of Scripture in a way that nourishes and feeds the church. Have you ever been at home and reading a passage of Scripture, and you're like, I got no idea what this means? And any, wow, you guys are all amazing biblical scholars. This is great. I should just sit down. This is wonderful. Uh, so we read our Scriptures at home, right? And we're just like, I know there's probably something really good here. I just don't know what it is, right? What's the role of the teacher? The role of the teacher is to to say, yeah, let me help you with that. Let me unpack the mystery of Scripture. Let me unpack the beauty of Scripture so that you can see it 
That might be an individual passage, it might be an idea, or it might be understanding the whole of Scripture. I grew up in the church, I knew all these stories. I knew about David and Goliath, I knew about Moses and the Red Sea, I knew all these stories. I had no idea how the whole picture fit together. I had no idea what was the bigger picture. That came way later in my life. And a teacher can help you to understand at all of these different levels the beauty of Scripture. Number four, to ensure we have theological discourse. Uh, does this sound really weighty and heavy and maybe slightly boring? Well, <clears throat> let me also say, not only do you have a worldview, each of you is a theologian. Each of you has a theology. Have you ever had a thought about God? Well, if you're here, you probably have had a thought about God in your life. Um, if you've had a thought about God, or if you've ever said anything about God, you have done theology. You are thinking theologically. Yeah. Theology just means, you know, talking about God. You have a, when you think about God, you think about something. You think about him in a certain way. Right. That's theology. The teacher in the church wants to have you think about God, wants to have you think about theology. Because there are lots and lots of things that have been said about God for thousands of years that we can draw from. We don't have to make up what God is like. We already know, and the teachers in the church help us to think about what God is like from what we already know about him. Integrating life and thinking. This is another important role of the teacher in the church, that good teaching not only informs you, that is, gives you knowledge, but good teaching should form you, that is, should really help to structure and create life in you, to help people connect their theology, their God thinking, with living life, right? And our work, you know, our Redeeming Work workshop is a great example of this. Let's think about work, right? God has a way of thinking about work. We need to know what that is. Let's connect those two together. It's the role of the teacher. Transmitting ideas. It's essential for the church to understand ideas, but also to be able to transmit those ideas. It's really important that we transmit, transmit the ideas of God that we know to each other, that we remind each other, but also that we transmit them out to people that don't know God yet, and that we pass them on to the next generation, and that's what the role of the teacher is really interested in. Number eight is to develop traditioning. Traditioning is kind of a made-up word, but uh, basically what this means is there are traditions of learning that we can build together as a church, patterns of learning. This might look like small groups, it might look like life groups, it might look like um, a class that we take or a workshop. It might look like some churches do this by following the church calendar and a lectionary or a liturgy. But whatever it looks like, churches build these patterns or these traditions where we learn over time. A teacher is very, very interested in forming that and creating it. And then number nine, very related to this, creating a culture of lifelong learning. This gift of a teacher creates a passion for learning at no matter what stage of life you are in. Guess what? At every stage of life, there are new things you need to learn. And the teacher helps you. When you are in your 20s, there's certain things you want to know about and things you want to learn about. When you're in your 60s and 70s, those things are different, right? There, there's just different things that you're thinking about. There's different things you want to know about. 
Maybe you weren't thinking about those things in your 20s. The teacher helps in that role. There is a particular set of wisdom and ideas and truths that the teacher wants to communicate and wants to make sure are instilled in the life of the church. In the New Testament, Paul was very, very interested in teaching. There's actually a lot of the New Testament letters and churches very focused on teaching. And why were they focused on teaching? Because there were a lot of false teachers and a lot of false teaching. Um, Let's continue with Ephesians chapter 4, just for a second here. These verses come right after where we just left off. Paul writes, thinking about this fullness of Christ, this whole fullness of Christ and maturity in Christ, we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every aspect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together, by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. They have lost all sensitivity and have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance to the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Um, I emphasized a couple of words there that you may have picked up on in order to help us understand two big ideas from this passage. The first is Paul connects teaching with maturity. Teaching and maturity go together in Paul's world. Uh, What does maturity look like? We're thinking here of spiritual maturity. Maturity means growth. Growing, the process of growing. And Paul actually, to help us understand this spiritually, takes an example from everyday life. And he looks at everyday life and he thinks about being a child or an infant. We caught that in the first verse. That we are not to be like infants. And so I was able to apply this to my own life. We have an almost two-year-old. And um, he's great for an almost two-year-old. And uh, we really love him, but we also do not want him to remain as an almost two-year-old. We, we, uh, though we love him, uh, right now when he wants something, he might use one of the few words that he has, but mostly he'll cry. Uh, when he's hungry, he'll cry. When he's tired, he'll cry. When he wakens up in the morning, he'll cry. When he wakens up in the middle of the night, he will also cry. He has a very limited attention span. He can't feed himself. He can't bathe himself. He can't dress himself. He wears diapers that he doesn't change himself. And despite of all of this, we tell him every day how great he is. That makes no sense, right? Why does it make sense, though? It makes sense because he's exactly where he's supposed to be, right? I don't expect him to do any of those things. That's unreasonable expectation, right? That's the same spiritually, right? In the church, it's okay for some of us to be younger in our faith, younger in our spiritual maturity, right? 
Some of us have been at this a long time, and we should be mature. It's okay, right? So part of the grace is, let's be gracious to each other in our own spiritual maturity, right? right? And what's the key here for Paul? It's maturity, which is growth. The key is that we keep growing, right? We keep growing. Why do I have so much grace for all of those things in our almost two-year-old? It's because I don't expect them to last forever, right? Part of the way I have grace for it is because it's not going to last forever. He's going to keep growing, right? And that's great. In the same way, when we look at the immature spiritual behavior in someone in our church, we shouldn't make that person feel shame, right? It's okay for them to be spiritually immature, right? What does that look like? Well, they might frankly gossip. They might be very self-centered. They might use language that we're not used to hearing. There might be a whole bunch of things, right? They might be what we call a little rough around the edges. (coughs) That's okay, right? They don't know the language. They don't know how to ask for help. They don't even know what to ask for. That's okay. But we can come alongside and we can provide a safe and a secure place for them to grow spiritually. Just like we provide a safe and secure home for Sam to grow and to become mature. What's our role? We provide everything he needs so he can grow. Right? Church is the same way. But there's one key thing that I want to highlight in this. We don't just provide this nice, warm, loving, cozy environment for Sam. We also teach him things. It's really important that we teach him things because we're not always going to be there. He has to learn some things about life so that he can mature, right? He has to know right from wrong, good from bad. He needs to know what things are are helpful in life and good to embrace. He needs to know the good things from the bad things. How does he learn those? We teach him in the same way spiritually. There are just some things we got to know. There are things as the church that we just have to know if we're going to mature. And Paul says, that's the gift that the teacher brings. The second point from this passage is Paul draws a comparison between two sets of people. Did you pick up on the comparison between the two sets of people? One set of people we've just been talking about. They are believers who are on this path in Christ of spiritual maturity, becoming the fullness of of Jesus. There are other people who are not on that path. Notice how Paul talks about them. He says they are ignorant. They are darkened in their understanding. Their thinking is futile. Is this a compliment? Would you like this said about you? Oh, hey, uh, let me introduce introduce you. Uh, So maybe you introduce some people. Oh, yeah, don't listen to him. His uh, thinking is darkened. His thinking is futile. He thinks he knows what he's talking about, but not there. Mm-mm. Right? We would hate that, right? Right? It's like so demeaning. And, and yet, Paul says there are people in this world who live this way spiritually. Right? They are ignorant. Their thinking is futile. Their thinking is darkened. Uh, they are not on a path of maturity. They're not on a path of growth. And so, in the church, 
we live in this completely different reality where we know the truth and we are maturing spiritually towards the fullness of Christ. Now, if you're tracking with this series, you're tracking with where I'm going next, which is that Jesus himself is a teacher, right? And I'm just going to talk about this for a couple of minutes because, you know, we may be familiar with this. There are two things I want to highlight from the ministry of Jesus. Number one, he's a teacher, right? He went by the title of rabbi, which is this title given to uh, wise men and teachers, and uh, they would have followers. What's an interesting story in this uh, is uh, when, when Christ was, was, was a boy and was growing up, we know very, very little about his childhood, except for the Christmas story. We really only know one other story from his childhood, and it's when he was 12, and he goes up to the temple in Jerusalem with his parents and a bunch of other people, and uh, it's the annual Passover festival, and they do all the festival stuff, and they're on their way home, and his parents realize, like, oh, Jesus isn't here. Where is he? That'd be a bad look if you're a parent, right? Where is Jesus? If you've lost Jesus, that's really bad. So they go back to Jerusalem, and they find him in the temple, and where do they find him specifically? He's with the teachers. So this is interesting, because the first story in the gospel that we have recorded where Jesus did something that he just decided to do, right? All the other, all the other Christmas stuff happens to Jesus, right? Right? He's born. He, you know, is taken down to Egypt. He's taken back from Egypt, right? But Jesus at 12 makes a decision to do something, right? And he goes, and he's among the teachers. And what's he doing? He's amazing them with his teaching. The second thing is Jesus, as an adult, continues in this teaching ministry. When you are paying attention to Jesus as a teacher, there's something that really stands out to you. So much of our Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, actually are just, exam- are just stories of Jesus' teaching. So we know that Jesus heals people. We know that we have the story of Christ's um, death and burial and resurrection. We know that Jesus is a savior, a healer, a redeemer. He's loving, he's gracious, he's kind, but he's also a teacher. And he teaches using parables, which is where he takes everyday cultural expressions and things from everyday life, and he teaches great um, spiritual truths about the kingdom of God using those everyday images. So Jesus is a teacher. And what was interesting about Jesus as a teacher is that he taught as one who has authority, which was unlike the other teachers of his day. Jesus, when he finishes the Sermon on the Mount, people are amazed and they say, wow, he teaches with authority. Not like those other guys. So what does this mean as we summarize this morning for the church? Uh, Well, a few things that I, I want to just highlight, and I'll touch on these very, very briefly. Remember, I started this morning thinking about teaching and the teacher as a gift of grace to the church. This might seem really obvious, but as Christians, there are just some things we have to know. There are just things we need to know as Christians. Things that will help us know how to live right, to know right from wrong, to know foolishness from wisdom. If somebody was to come up here next week and uh, they were to say, hey, I got this new revelation of God. God is actually like a fish. What? We say that's weird. I thought God created the fish, so God. hang on, you're gonna to have to explain. So how would we know if that's a that's a true idea or if that's a false idea? 
we measure it against what we already know, right? If you don't know anything about God, you can believe anything, right? If you don't know one single truth about God, you'll believe any truth that passes. Oh, hey, I heard, I heard this new thing about God over here. <coughs> oh, wait, hang on. There's another new idea about God I heard over here. Oh, there's another new idea about God I heard over here. Which one is true? Um, Paul actually describes that behavior in one of the verses we read earlier. Doing that is the spiritual equivalent of being an infant. You don't know anything. You don't know what to believe. A teacher brings truth that is established in Scripture, that has been debated and discussed and refined over centuries of the church. And the teacher gift to the church is to bring this truth and to remind you of this truth and to help you live out that truth. So it might seem really obvious, but there are just things we have to know as Christians about God, about what he's like and how he's revealed in Scripture. And the goal of the teacher is to help you grow in that. Number two, it's necessary for maturity. We talked about this earlier. Paul, remember in this passage, connects knowing with maturing. How do you know if you're maturing? Are you still learning about God? Do you know more about God today than you did a year ago? And this might sound weird, but I don't really care how you know. But do you still, do you know more, right? The teacher wants you to know more, right? The teacher will prompt you, will say, do you know more? Learn more about God. Read the scriptures. Listen to podcasts. Listen to sermons. Go to conferences. Come to church every week. Learn more about God. Teaching shapes us in powerful ways. Have you ever learned something and you're like, no, I get it. Oh, yeah. I did not know that before, and now I do. All of these other possibilities have now unlocked for me. Right? You ever play video games growing up and you unlock something and it's like, boom, you're in this whole other area? Teaching and learning is like that. Ah, oh, now, now I see it. Think about when you learn to read. The world completely opened up to you when you learned to read, right? Wow. Now I, must, I can sustain my own learning. Now I know a few things. I know what words are. Amazing, right? Right now our son is reading uh, books that have pictures, right? And pages that are made of cardboard so he doesn't tear them out, right? But hopefully he doesn't stay with those books forever. So... <laughs> Learning unlocks things in our lives. It unlocks potential. It fuels your imagination. When you learn things about God, it brings you into freedom, right? We sometimes think, oh, learning, that's boring. Learning is exciting because it unlocks so much and allows you to step into things you would not otherwise be able to step into. And finally, teaching helps to shape and form community. And with this, we come full circle to where Paul starts Ephesians chapter 4 and where I started this morning. Unity of the church is connected very strongly with maturity in the church. Because one way we know we're becoming more mature is that we're less focused on us and more focused on other people. Think about this at New Day. When we have communion, what do we do? 
When we have communion together, what do we, what do we celebrate together? What do we do together? We recite the creed, right? And what are we doing when we do that? We are affirming on a regular basis, we believe these ideas to be true. We have learned these, and we affirm them to be true. Wow, that is powerful in shaping community. Community can only happen when we decide together, we all affirm these core ideas and these core truths. And the goal of the teacher is to remind us of what those truths are and to help us form community around those truths. And I have one side comment to finish on this. I know in our type of church we get very excited when people have individual revelations and have individual visions. Maybe it's the prophet. Maybe it's the apostle. And that's great. We love that. It's really hard to build community around it, though. Why is that? Because it's an individual one-on-one experience, right? Maybe I have this amazing revelation. I'm going to try to communicate it to you, but ultimately, that was a great thing for me. Teaching is different. Teaching says, let's open this up. Are you having a hard time with Ephesians 4? Hopefully after this morning, you know a little bit more about Ephesians 4. So when you are at home, you can read Ephesians 4 for yourself, and you know more about Ephesians 4. We can build community around Ephesians 4 because we've spent the last month looking at Ephesians 4. That's the role of a teacher. Okay? So hear me when I say, I'm not saying that other stuff is bad. I'm just saying teaching is a way to form community together. And it's central to the life of the church. So the teacher is a gift to the church, directly given by Christ, so that you can be equipped to grow up, to be mature, and to attain the whole measure of the fullness of Christ in your life. Let's pray. Father God, I want to thank you for each person who's here this morning. I thank you for what you are doing in their lives, and I thank you that at whatever point they are in their spiritual growth, that you desire for them to keep growing and to attain this fullness in their life. Pray you would bless and protect each person and each family here this morning. Watch over them, I pray. You know each individual person, each individual need, each individual situation. God, I thank you so much for your grace, and I pray that you would watch over us today. In your name we pray. Amen.